Okay, good morning, ladies and the ladies out in podcast land. Today we are looking at week seven, which is entitled The Beginning of the End in Our Workbooks. So let's come to the Lord and commit this time um, in prayer. Lord, I pray that you will work through this passage and this message that is before us today. Help us to sp- help me to speak your words clearly and correctly for your sake. We ask that you open our hearts to learn, open our ears to hear, and keep our minds engaged to soak up what you have for us today. Lord, we ask this all in your name. Amen. Okay, so last week... We took a walk with Noreen through 10 chapters of Jesus' teaching and his journey back to Jerusalem. Through this journey, Jesus knew full well the direction that he was going. Dun, 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 Jerusalem. The place where his earthly life would end. The events about to happen here are not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus is directing the sequence of events that lead to his death. To begin, we're at the Mount of Olives, about two miles east of Jerusalem, where we find Jesus and his followers. It is the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So we look at the passage, Luke 19, 28 through 44. This passage has been coined the triumphal entry. And if you've been around church for some time, you know where this is, or know that this is where our Palm Sunday story comes from. Okay, ladies, what's really happening here? After many of Jesus' miracles and teachings, he is usually telling his people to keep things quiet. He only does things by action, and he tells everyone to tell no one. And now he's holding a ticker tape parade for his entry into the century-old home of God's people? Why? Well, this is a very complex event. Jesus is going out of his way to fulfill a specific prophecy from the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey's, of a donkey. Can you hear it, ladies? Zechariah is telling the Old Testament people what to expect when the coming of or when the coming of the king of Zion, the long-awaited Messiah, presents himself in the future. Jesus begins to direct these events to fulfill exactly what this prophecy foretold. He tells his disciples to fetch a specific unridden donkey, commonly referred to as a colt. And if anyone asks what they're doing, they're simply to say, the Lord needs it. Okay, so a side note here. The cultural background for this response is what they call angaria, where a dignitary could procure use of property for personal reasons. This right extended to people like rabbis, so as unusual as it seems to us, the request would have not been as unusual in those times. Jesus plans, to, plans a humble yet regal entrance Sorry, Jesus' plan of a humble yet regal entrance is a bit of a threat to Rome. 
since he neither neither seizes power nor gives indication that he is a king of power. Jesus' entry is a major statement about God's plan and the nature of his kingship. It literally retraces the steps of the procession Solomon had in 1 Kings 1, 38 through 39, where he is riding on a king on King David's mule across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem. It's certainly a picture of humility, entering on a donkey instead of a war horse, like what Herod and Pilate would have received as they entered the city later that week. Well, in the crowd, some like what's happening, some hate it, and some are completely in the dark and just don't understand it. But these people know their scriptures, and they can see that this red carpet event is unfolding to look similar to what they know from scriptures about Solomon becoming king. And it looks like the coming Messiah that Zacharias was talking about. After the disciples throw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it, in true mob-like mentality, the people spread their cloaks in front of him as well. Luke explicitly mentions that the disciples were the catalyst for the praise toward Jesus. The crowd's praise of Jesus is boisterous, yet lukewarm and follows the lead of other more sincere followers. This explains how a few days later, the same exact crowd can urge that Jesus be crucified. The popular masses are always fluctuating in their understanding of Jesus. The study guide that we have tells us that this is the only hour of Jesus' earthly life that he is publicly acknowledged as King of Kings. We turn to the rebuke. Luke 19, 39 through 40. Of course, what would be an exciting situation without a little bit of drama, ladies? And so the Pharisees bring it at just the right moment, too. They are fuming that this whole scene is occurring, and they are extremely aware of the picture that Jesus is painting from the beloved scriptures they ironically hold closely to. The Pharisees come and tell Jesus to reject the claim that he is Messiah, and to tell his disciples to be quiet. Jesus makes it very clear that if the disciples don't speak, creation will. This is a small section, but let's not ignore its significance. Creation speaks when an injustice needs to be avenged. We see this in Genesis 4.10, Habakkuk 2.11, and James 5.4. But it is also an inherent rebuke toward the Pharisees. Jesus was urging or suggesting that creation knows more about what was taking place in that moment than the Pharisees did. Maybe this is where dumb as a box of rocks comes from. I don't know. Just suggesting. The situation could not be more tragic as the tears of Jesus will soon show. Men of sorrows over Jerusalem. We're looking at 1941 through 44 Luke shows us a glimpse into Jesus' heart. It is the last leg of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Let me set the scene here. Okay, there are people celebrating all around him, praising him, rejoicing over the possibility that he is the Messiah. They are thinking that perhaps this is, at long last, the great son of David, the promised royal rescuer, riding into the holy city to definitively save his people. 
Jesus is obviously in the middle of the sea of celebrations. He is divided by the spirit of the crowd's jubilation and their soon rejection of him as a divinely selected king. What lies ahead, the plan he will suffer due to this nation's choice, is the curse for covenantal unfaithfulness. These roots go back and trail through the Old Testament like a bad, unruly weed. In Deuteronomy 28 through 32, God warned that such unfaithfulness would lead to his judgment through other nations. And Jesus wishes it, would all, it was all different and that they would understand the way of peace. But at this point, the ball is rolling. He is about to enter into the central events that reveal his mission and solidify salvation for humanity. Jesus is at the hub of God's plan, but the cost of it all is hitting Jesus at full capacity at that moment. His heart shows us that he was grieving over the choice the nation made. This shows us how his heart is for us when we grieve him, over our choices that go against God's plan. We look to Luke 19, 45 through 48, the cleaning out of the temple. King Herod's temple began renovations on the second temple, which replaced Solomon's temple in approximately 20 BC. The temple was a staggering 35 acres in size. The court of the Gentile, you can kind of see the picture up here. The court of the Gentile was a larger court where devout Gentiles who could not come into the inner temple could come and pray and worship God. This area was supposed to be a quiet area devoted to prayer and to the worship of God. Instead, the Levites turned it into an animal market. You see, it all started as a matter of convenience. The thousands that would visit the temple for big events like the Passover would shop for their sacrificial animals in the Gentiles' courts because traveling with these animals would be too much for them and their animals. Foreigners would need to change over their currency to make extremely overpriced purchases. So they would do this exchange in the Gentile court at the money exchangers' tables. There usually was a heavy heavy tax for exchanging this money. Jonathan Parnell on the Desiring God website states that the great sadness of this scene was so, or wasn't so much the 10 acres of rows of products and price gouging, but that all this left no room for the Gentiles and the outcasts to come and worship God. This place of worship should have prefigured the hope of God's restored creation, a day when all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples uh, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. We see that Isaiah 2, 2 through 3. In other words, the ultimate vision of God's people in God's place should have looked very different than it did when Jesus stepped foot into Jerusalem. And because their worship was so far removed from this vision, Jesus had had enough. 
The worship of God's people was so out of line with God's purposes that zeal consumed God's Messiah. Jesus drives out the people selling animals for sacrifices and the money exchangers. Man, 10 acres, ladies, that would not have been easy to clear. Jesus's authority was challenged. Luke 21 through 19. Let's move on. Okay, so just like in a movie, we see Jesus, but let's now pan on over and look at the perspective from the side of the leadership, the Pharisees, of the temple for a moment. This was officially the straw that broke the camel's back. How could this man, Jesus, come into their sacred place that the leading priests have overseen for years and then turn it on its head? The priests the teachers of the law and other leaders of the people were finished with the games that Jesus was playing and began to figure out a plan on how to kill Jesus. Luke 20 verse 2 says, or in Luke 20 verse 2, you can see the leaders demanding answers from Jesus as they bellow, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? And Jesus publicly challenges them asking, Well, who gave John the Baptist the authority? The leaders were caught because they didn't believe John was a prophet like the people did. And if they say that he didn't have authority, they believe that the crowd would have stoned them. They were constantly consumed with the thoughts of the people around them. So they said they just didn't know, which made Jesus's authority shine once more. I love how in verse eight then, Jesus says, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he directly jumps right into the parable of the evil farmer, which was the answer to the question of the origin of Jesus's authority. So we look on to the parable of the evil farmers in Luke 29 through 18. This parable echoes Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, where the vineyard is the promise and the tenants refer to Israel, especially as represented by the leadership. A man plants a vineyard and rents it out to tenants. He expects to collect proceeds from the profits on the crops. Even if his absence is long, he expects the land to remain profitable. When harvest comes, the owner sends three servants at different times to collect the proceeds, but each come back beaten, treated shamefully, and wounded. These details portray the persistent unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel and their lack of response to the prophets. In the parable, the owner sends his only son, who he loves dearly and expects that the tenants will treat with respect. The tenants' logic is skewed, And they think killing the son will give them the rights to the land. They can't see that killing the heir will not reap benefits for them. It's twisted thinking and it's blindness. Jesus is alluding to the leader's approaching plan to kill him, which is the parable's key point. Jesus knows exactly what they are thinking, even though their thinking makes no logical sense. Jesus continues to drive home the point with Psalm 118.22. Here the point is that the rejected stone, Jesus, has become the stone God has exalted. 
If the people reject him, he will not be defeated. Instead, it will negatively impact the nation. You see, if God exalts the stone, Jesus, into the promised key foundational role, it is risky business to stand opposed to this foundation. The leaders are where Jesus is talking about them, and they, and they are the wicked farmers in Jesus' story. Jesus accuses them of being in the exact opposite place of where they see themselves. They want to arrest him right there, but the people still remain the obstacle. Jesus is still too popular with them and needs to be discredited first. So they do just that. They start to challenge Jesus. And we move on to a political challenge in Luke 20, 20 through 26. The Jewish leadership, they send spies to try and trip up Jesus on political grounds over taxes. In Luke 20, 20 through 26, the spies are looking for anything Jesus might say to allow them to hand him over to the governor on a political charge. In Roman custody, Jesus could be subject to death to the death penalty for treason, thus sparing the leadership of any direct blame for his death. Jesus, of course, is aware of their craftiness. He basically claims that the government has the right to exist and function, but its presence does not destroy one's allegiance to God. He does not step into the trap set for him as per usual. The theological challenge is next in Luke 20, 27 through 40. The Sadducees raise the issue of resurrection, but the Sadducees do not believe in resurrection. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. But since they were joining up with the Pharisees and trying to bring down Jesus, the Sadducees posed the question around the Levitical law that the Pharisees believe in to try to show how ludicrous it was. Assuming that a man was to be a husband of one wife in heaven, they constructed a whose wife will she be dilemma. There are seven brothers all doing their due diligence to follow the customs of the Levitical law. Each of the seven marriages to this woman ends in the death of the husband and childless. The question is, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since there are seven candidates. The Sadducees do not really want an answer, for they are convinced that the, that the dilemma shows the lack of logic in a resurrection. They also assume that the afterlife is like this life. The question is crucial, and it needs an answer for a few reasons. Number one, some Jews did believe in a resurrection. Number two, Jesus has predicted his own resurrection to his disciples. And number three, resurrection is at the center of what, what, beca what became the Christian hope. So, of course, Jesus gives a twofold answer. He notes that the afterlife is not like this life, like the Sadducees thought. And that there, was, there will be no marriage in the era to come. Since people will live forever, 
There will be no need for marriage and producing offspring to, re to replenish the earth. Relationships will operate on a different plane in heaven. People will become like angels who do not marry. Ladies, let me say this was a bit of a sad, this was a bit sad to think about, but we must remember that the quality and the purity of relationships will extend far beyond what marriage provides today. Sin will no longer cloud our relationships. Hallelujah. And the quality of personal interaction will be directed fully in the presence of God. For those who hesitate at this remark like I did, because their marriages have been good, just remember, heaven will be even better. <laughs> in the second point, Jesus, Jesus is to the second point of Jesus' answer, he implies that not everyone will be resurrected. He speaks about those considered worthy of taking part in that age, meaning that some will run the risk of being excluded from the afterlife. Jesus turns the tables now and he challenges the crowd with his own quiz in verse 41 through 44. In Psalm 1, 110, verse 1, David quotes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Jesus basically asks, if David is the speaker of the psalm and addresses the regal messianic figure as his Lord, how can the son of David, which was the favorite identification of the Messiah among the Jews, be the best title for the Messiah? Jesus does not give an answer, but he wants them to reflect on it. Think about it, guys. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is the son of David, but more fundamental to his ancestral role as son of David is his role as Lord. The title Lord expresses the sovereignty he possesses as God's promised regal agent, if therefore David showed such respect to the promised king, should not the Jewish leadership? Hmm. Though Jesus does not identify himself as Messiah, he has implied that in all that, he, that has been taking place through his actions. Sometimes, ladies, action does speak louder than words, and Jesus was the star of this statement. Luke 20, verse 2 asks, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, the answer, it is by God's authority. An authority David recognized when he called the promised descendant, my Lord. In Luke 20, 45 through 21, verse 4, we see the leadership's pride and their selfishness. On the heels of this riddle, Jesus gives his final warning about the Jewish leadership to his disciples. He is finally speaking out loud what he really thinks about them. He warns of their pride in their clothing, in their casual acknowledgments in the market, and even when they sit in the synagogue and at feasts. This pride leads further to an elevation of oneself that ends up seeing the others around them as inferior and capable of being used as pawns. In complete contrast, he points out that a widow 
who is giving in the temple. This widow represents the most vulnerable in society. Apparently, in managing a widow's affairs, the teachers of the law took a large cut for themselves. Their pretentious long prayers for others in the face of such inconsideration made matters worse. The leaders claimed to lead the people and to be examples of God's will, but their callousness shows through. The women here are shown, sorry, the woman here is shown in contrast to the Pharisees and the rich. The woman is not looking for credit, but um, for how she can humbly serve God with the little that she has left. She gives what little she has, even though she needs it to live on. She could have just gave one coin, but she gives it all. God calls that real giving. We tend to appreciate the amount of a gift, not necessarily the sacrifice that went into the giving. A seemingly poor gift can actually be rich in what it costs and represents. God sees your heart behind your giving of your time and of your money. Moving on, we get to talk about the future prophecy, Luke 21, 5 through to 28. As we said before, the temple started to be rebuilt in 20 BC. And so at AD 33, when Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple, the disciples look up and they were in awe of the grandeur of the architecture and the beautiful stones of this amazing building being built. Jesus tells them in verse 6, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. This was just a draw-dropping dropping comment. Certainly a building so grand would have a long life. This was considered the most glorious building on the face of the earth. The stones were huge, ladies. A single stone was 67 feet long, 7 feet high, 9 feet wide, made of pure white marble. The building was covered in jewels, gold, and adornments that it was so bright. People couldn't even look at it because of its brilliance. It held claims like a glorified Titanic. This temple was said to be indestructible. Yet Jesus says that this place will be flattened. When Jesus said that, people couldn't believe it. But guess what? 70 AD, the Romans did just this. We know this, but obviously the disciples don't. And obviously the disciples are curious about the future and they start to ask Jesus in verse 7, when will these things happen? Jesus' answer is the <laughs> longest answer he's ever answered. Not only that, but we see mirrored scripture of this event in Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark 13. They kind of all go together. Luke's version focuses more on the now, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, what is interesting is the double reference or the double meaning of the text. This prophecy focuses on the, uh, the immediate historical context and events about to occur in Luke's time. So, so 
the immediate, Luke's time, short-term events, but it also simultaneously speaks about events associated with the return of man, the tribulation, the long-term events at the end of time. Mirror. Jesus, uh, ladies, it's like a mirror of events or an echo from the time of Jesus' remarks here through to the destruction of Jerusalem and into the period of the Lord's return. So first, Jesus' warning in Luke 21, verse 8, uh, the first warning is that many will come in Jesus' name claiming that I am the Messiah. Jesus says, do not follow them. Jesus has already told them in Luke 17, 22 through 25, that his return will be visible to all and will be obvious. We see that on the Lord's return when he came after he rose from the dead. And we're going to see that later in the end times. Jesus' ascension in the New Testament era had a ton of copycats of Jesus. And Jesus' imposters have been around ever since. Secondly, Jesus' second warning is the presence of war and rumors of war and natural disasters. We know about the immediate takeover of Jerusalem in AD 66 through 70. Nations will rise against nations. The, disaster, the natural disasters will be widespread. Earthquakes, famines, pestilence, or plagues, along with other fearful events and great heavenly signs. Well, ladies, we don't have to search hard to find a heading or a news broadcast that hits every one of these situations today. But we have also been seeing these events occur for the last 2,000 years. But like birth pains, we will just keep, they will just keep getting more and more intense until the Lord's return. In verse 12, Jesus tells us about our last warning before the copycats and the cos, cosmic, cos, cosmic chaos comes. Tongue twister. God's people will be persecuted. This actually starts almost immediately after the crucifixion. The large portion of Acts and large portions of Acts can be read as initial fulfillments of this prophecy. The disciples need to hear this because they will have the chance to step up to the public mi microphone and testify to him under insane and life-threatening pressure. In verse 14, Jesus tells his disciples not to worry about how they will answer, for he will supply the words and give them the wisdom to answer through the Holy Spirit. Hopefully in the future, we will have the same grace. In verse 20, verse 22, Jesus reviews again how the city and the temple will fall. The nation is headed for hard times. Her rejection of Jesus will be painful and costly. And we know from history that a million Jews were killed and nearly 100,000 taken captive during this devastating invasion. Verse 22 states clearly all these events take place in fulfillment of all that has been written. There are no surprises in God's plans, ladies. Unfaithfulness is something God does not ignore. When the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then God's promised plan will move forward to completion. Verse 25 addresses the end that begins with his return. The end of human history will have great cosmic signs from the sun, the moon, and the stars. One will not have to question or have to search to find it. 
The disturbances will be so great that it will bring great anguish and distress. When the earth becomes an unstable environment and the heavens give evidence of instability, the son of man, a human figure who is given divine-like authority, will appear riding on the clouds. Woohoo! At this time of Jesus' return, saints present um, at that time can lift their heads for, the for their redemption is near. A place of fear, in the place of fear, we will have hope. Verse 23 is one of the most difficult verses in Luke. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Jesus will not return during Luke's or the disciples' time. Many have thought of ideas as to what the specific time frame means for this generation. The most preferred is that the genera that generation, that word generation, that seems all these things refers to the generation present in verse 25. In other words, those who see the beginning of the end of the cosmic signs will see then the arrival of the decisive era of the Son of Man's return. Jesus finally ends the chapter with a strong caution to disciples and to us to be sure that the day of the coming of Christ does not uh, take them by surprise. Some of us will be ready for it. Others will be surprised. Luke ends this section by noting that for Jesus' last few days, he taught each day and slept at the Mount of Olives at night. This will be the last chance Jesus can preach the hope of the promise. As we will see next week, there is nothing ahead of Jesus now but the cross. Ladies, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is full of answers to the things that we deal with today. We pray that you will use this text to hold us to a new standard of living. Help us to be ready for you and your glorious return. Until that day, please continue to reveal the sins in our hearts so that we can fully shine your light to the dark world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.